Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay, Weeping for a Nation, the book of Jeremiah. Powerful and amazing book of Jeremiah. Well, as I begin this morning, let me tell you a few stories. Quick, quick few stories. Anthony Fernando, these are all true, by the way. Anthony Fernando, a 21-year-old man living in Sri Lanka. He went fishing one day off the coast of the island. A fork-tailed garfish jumped out of the water and cut him on the neck with his tail. He bled to death before a fellow fisherman could get him to the hospital. Lance Foster, a 23-year-old student at the University of Kansas, he was studying at his desk one night. Foster became thirsty, decided to walk down the hallway to get something to drink. He put his money in the machine, but the drink didn't come out. He rocked the vending machine back and forth to get the can of soda. It fell on top of him. He died from internal injuries shortly thereafter. <laughs> Ali Asghar Ahani from Iran, he was trying to capture a snake. Listen to this one. He was trying to capture a snake alive. He had a shotgun. He pressed the butt of the shotgun behind the snake's head on the ground. The snake coiled itself around the gun, and with its tail thrashing, the snake pulled the trigger, firing one of the barrels and shooting Ahani in the head, and he died. <laughs> One, one more, one more. After winning $3.6 million in the lottery, <laughs> William Curry must have thought he was the luckiest person in the world. He won the lottery. But two weeks after hitting the jackpot, Curry, at the age of 37, died of a heart attack. His sister-in-law said that the stress of winning the lottery killed him. Oh, I, I, I don't know how it's going to happen. But there, here's the point. There is no escaping it. <laughs> There's no escaping it. When it's our time to go, it's our time to go. And I'm not, not going to be depressing today. I hope I'm not going to be depressing. But I am going to talk about death. And I am going to talk about judgment. And it's going to be real. Apparently, some of the world's richest people uh, don't like death. <laughs> And they put a lot of money into finding a remedy for the problem of death. There's an author, his name is Adam Goldner. He writes, there's something about amassing more money than you can ever possibly use that naturally makes you hunger for ways to stay alive longer, if not forever. He's written a whole book about this. And he gives one example, and that is a man named Larry Ellison. You might have heard of him. He's the CEO of Oracle Corporation, and he's the sixth richest person in the world. He contributes, Larry Ellison contributes more than $40 million per year to the cause of eliminating death. It is said that he views death as just another kind of a corporate opponent that he can, he can outfox. He set up a foundation dedicated to ending mortality. Here's what his, he says, quote, Death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. 
Death has never made any sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish? Just not be there. The inability to control this thing called death is very frustrating to people. And we've all heard it. There are, what are the two things you can't avoid in life? Death and taxes. We chuckle at this, but as I was thinking about this, wait a minute. This is actually true. I am actually going to die one day. I am going to die one day. And I want to be real about that, and I want to be, we need to talk about it. And I don't, again, I don't want to ruin your day here, but I think every now and, now and then we need to be reminded of the truth. <laughs> Some of you say, Pastor, don't worry, I'm reminded every day. But, <laughs> but the truth is we, we are going to die, each one of us. And my real point this morning is not only will death happen, but just as sure as death will happen for every one of us, after that is the judgment. And it's just as real just as true, and it's going to happen just as sure as death is going to happen. Hebrews 9.27, as you know, says, And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. We're going to see the judgment day for Israel today that Jeremiah has been talking about. For 40 years, Jeremiah has been on the scene saying, Judgment is coming, guys. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Repent. Ask the Lord for mercy. He's been telling them and telling them and telling them and God has been withholding back judgment for uh, centuries. But in these 40 years, he has been driving home this point. He has not gotten off topic. So he is going to, uh, he, he is now is going to be proven correct as we talk about the actual judgment when it comes. But first, I want to say a few things about God's judgment in general before we jump into the chapter here. God's final judgment on sin. Now, we're going to be talking about his judgment on Judah. But God's final judgment on sin that is still yet to come is a reality. It is true. It's going to happen. It's not some imaginary thing. Again, it's just as real as physical death. And it will come. God's judgment will come on this nation and on all the people around us. And it's going to come God's judgment will come on the people that you know, that you work with, the people that you come in contact with. And the Old Testament and the New Testament make it very clear that judgment day is coming. You know, when Paul preached to the superstitious idol worshipers in Greece, in Acts chapter 17, here is what he said. Acts 17, verse 29. For as much then, he's standing on Mars Hill in Athens, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought to, not to think that the God has, is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. This is the Apostle Paul in the New Testament preaching. Verse 31 now. Because he, that is God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world. In righteousness. He's standing there, all these people listening to him, all the, these idol worshipers, and he's saying to them, He hath appointed a day. There is a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in, the, in that he hath raised him from the dead. 
And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Then in Acts chapter 24, when Paul had the opportunity to speak face to face to a Roman governor, Verse 24, Acts 24, 24. And after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned, this is Paul, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Judgment to to come. Paul, the great apostle Paul, warned that there is a day on the calendar. There's a day on God's calendar when he will judge the world, and he will judge every single person. The God who fulfilled his word to judge in the Old Testament is the same God that will fill his word to judge in the coming days. Now, real quick, some might try to find fault in God for such harsh judgment that we read in the, in the Bible. They wonder if all these people, do they really deserve this? Some even have the audacity to say that a sovereign God who created all things is committing genocide. But the reason we as humans sometimes think this way is because we don't grasp the severity of sin as God does. I read a a very fascinating article, a long article this week written by a man named Clay Jones, and I think his title said it all. Here was the title of the article. It was, We Don't Hate Sin, So We Don't Understand Judgment. We Don't Hate Sin, So We Don't Understand Judgment. In this article, the author gave historically proven examples of the wickedness that was going on in Canaan land. Idolatry, which involved all kinds of disgusting and sinful practices that hurt people, young and old. Incest, adultery, child sacrifice, as we've talked about before. Homosexuality, bestiality. He laid out some of what they have discovered in writings and archaeology about these sins and how pervasive they were in, that, in Canaanite culture. And every one of those sins causes unimaginable destruction on families from dad, mom, all the way down to the youngest kids. It, it causes all kinds of damage in their life. It causes not only then the family, but then it permeates throughout the entire society. And many of those things even lead to death for children and others. And those who are, especially those who are fragile and weak. So what God did to punish Canaan when Israel came in and drove them out of the land. What God did to Canaan was not genocide, it's capital punishment. And he wrote about then how Israel came along, they drove out the Canaanites from the land because God told them to, and this was God's way of judging their pervasive wickedness, the Canaanites' pervasive wickedness, but the problem, as you know, Israel didn't drive them all out like they were supposed to, and then later Israel participated in the exact same sins, the very same things, idolatry, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality. In detail, he kind of laid out some of these things. And 400 years later, God is now going to bring about judgment on them. It was the Canaanites in that land, and God drove them out. And now, 
We're at a place in, in Israel's history here in Jeremiah where Jeremiah has been telling them what's going to happen and now it's going to happen. They are now going to be driven out of the land because of the very same things they were doing that Canaan was doing. But let's pay attention, America. Let's look at this, America. We as a nation are participating in, as a nation, and celebra- even celebrating the very same sins. Now, I, you know, I could list stat after stat this morning that probably would not surprise you about where this country is in regard to all those things I just listed. And it's actually very shocking in some of those areas when you actually see the numbers, for example, of websites that produce some of these very things that are on this list and, and how many people per day go to those websites. But here's the point. God hates sin. God hates sin because sin leads to rebellion and then it leads to the worst kinds of evil imaginable and it hurts people. Here's what this author, Clay Jones, said. And I have the quote here for you. We do not appreciate the depths of our own depravity, the horror of sin, and the righteousness of God. Consequently, it is no surprise that when we see God's judgment upon those who committed the sins we, we commit, that complaint and protest arises within our hearts. This is divine barbarism, or this is divine genocide. But studying these things over the years has led me to wonder if the Canaanites might not stand at the judgment and condemn this generation. We don't understand sin, so we don't understand judgment. We don't get the, uh, the, the depravity of sin, so we don't quite get and understand when God has to judge. One more thing about God's judgment here as we read about this. Because we're talking about death. We're talking about people dying. We're talking about God sending judgment that's going to end people's lives. There are several times in the Old Testament where you see God initiating judgment on a nation. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Egyptians when he uh, killed their firstborn, the Canaanites and the Amalekites. Somebody has studied those and put them all together and they found four common features. I'm going to put them up here for you. Number one, in each of those cases, you see divine judgment. They're all the judgments of God against extreme sin. Two, you see God gives them a time to repent. It's common in every single one. They're all preceded by long periods of God giving them an opportunity to get out of this. Come to me, repent, turn around. Number three, there's always a witness to God. During the time of opportunity, there was a knowledge available to the people that enabled them to know about God and know what God was about to do. And then the lastly, there was salvation through faith. You know, people who had faith in God were innocent before him and they were always provided a means of salvation. Their families were saved, their children, of those that died when they trusted or when they trusted God, they were rescued from this death. In fact, we have specific examples of that in every case, except apparently the Amalekites story. But I know there's no doubt that there were people saved even then. But look at this. The same principles that we see there of the Old Testament judgment, the, the examples of that, 
Those same principles also apply to what the New Testament says about the coming judgment on sin now. Number one, divine judgment. God initiates, but the consequences uh, are eternal life. This, in this final judgment, the consequences are eternal life or eternal death. This is a spiritual thing that's taking place, but it's, uh, it's God's judgment. Number two is a time to repent. God right now, right this moment, is patiently waiting and giving people an opportunity to repent. That is why he has not come back yet. That is why he has not, uh, Jesus has not uh, returned. That's second, what 2 second Peter chapter 3 tells us. He is waiting for people to repent. He loves people. He's giving them an opportunity. But when he returns, God's judgment will come and no one will escape it. And then God's witness, number three. Christians are, Christians, you and me, are right now the, these witnesses. We are the witnesses to God's truth and God's love in this world. And then lastly, salvation through faith. As you know, and the Bible lays out very clearly, this is what the whole Bible is about from beginning to end, that there is a day coming when God will judge sin, but God has, God has made a way for people to be redeemed and come out of that and be saved through faith. And that is what our job is to tell. By the way, once you see the severity of judgment, the severity of sin, all of the sudden, you see then, when you accept Jesus Christ, you see what we have been saved from. And then this salvation is more, is more treasured in your heart than it ever has been before. And you start to sing the song, Amazing Grace, like you've never sung it before. And you start to just be thankful and appreciate the salvation that God has put in your, in your life. Without truth, without this truth of judgment, without understanding it, without understanding sin, we don't fully grasp salvation. We don't fully grasp grace. Now let's look at how all this comes together at this epic moment in Jewish and world history here, which, which Jeremiah has been talking about for 40 years. This chapter, Jeremiah chapter 39, is almost the exact same as Jeremiah chapter 52, and then also in 2 Kings chapter 25. Here we go, Jeremiah 39 and verse one. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 10th month came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. And in the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. So if you, keep, if you can do the math that fast, this is an 18 month siege. It's brutal. 18 months siege, besieging Jerusalem. And I like what G. Campbell Morgan reminded us. We in our security need to be reminded that for us also there may come the 11th year and the 4th month and the 10th day of the month when God will hurl us from our place of privilege and he surely will unless we put our trust in him. Judgment day is coming and our, our, our 11th year and 4th month and 10th day is coming. And verse 3, and all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, even Nergal Sherezer, Sem Garnibo, Sarsikim, Rabsaris, Nergal Sherezer, Rabmag, with all the residue of the princes of the king of Babylon. Don't make fun of me, I'm sure you, could, you would struggle too, okay? <laughs> so these, all these guys, these princes of the king of Babylon came in, they storm in. 
And they sit, it says, in the middle gate. What were they doing there? Sitting in the middle gate was a visible way for all of the city to see that we are establishing and setting up a brand new government. No longer is Zedekiah your king. No longer are they in charge. We are in charge. And we're going to start administering orders from this gate. Verse 4. And it came to pass that when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saw them and all the men of war, then they fled and went forth out of the city by night, by the way of the king's garden, by the gate betwixt the two walls, and he went out the way of the plain. But the Chaldeans' army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. This is such a picture of those who think that they can escape the judgment of God. King Zedekiah runs, sneaks (laughs) by night, by the way of the garden, between the two walls, and out into the plain, thinking he could somehow escape uh, this judgment that God was bringing. But he could never escape. And they caught him. Talk to most people today, and they think somehow they're going to escape God's judgment. Some think through their good deeds, they're going to escape God's judgment. Some, just by denying it and saying, you know, I just don't believe that's really going to happen like that. I I just, you know, I don't think God's like that. I'm not that bad of a person. I don't think God would do that. Just like Zedekiah, they think that they can run and sneak away somehow and not come to God on his terms. You can try to escape and hide from God's judgment your own way, but it will never work. We must accept God's offer of mercy while there is still time. So here is what we see now. Zedekiah is standing in front of the king. He's captured. He's taken back to King Nebuchadnezzar who is in Riblah. He's not in Babylon at the moment. And that's important for a reason we're going to talk about. He's in the safe zone in Riblah. Verse 6. Then the king of Babylon slew or killed the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. So Zedekiah is standing there. They've they've got him bound and they're holding him and they make him watch as they kill every one of his sons in front of his eyes. And it's the last thing he sees because then they, they take his eyes out. And then they chain him up and haul him off to Babylon. Remember, last week we talked about this. God gave him an opportunity. Zedekiah, repent, and and your family will be saved. You will be saved. The city won't be burned. Just come and obey God. But he wouldn't do it. Ezekiel prophesied that Zedekiah would never see Babylon. And this came true. He was bound and carried off to Babylon, but because his eyes were out, he never saw it with his eyes. And all of God's prophecies were coming, tr- were coming true. Oh, the pain and regret that people are going to have when they're standing at the judgment and they had a chance to obey the Lord, but they never took it. They had a chance, but they never took it. Verse 8, And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and break down the walls of Jerusalem. 
They've discovered in archaeology remnants of homes in Jerusalem that are still charred by the fire of, of, of the Babylonians when they came. Huge ash heaps in these homes. Still ash there from this day. And recently, what's interesting is, as I was reading, they've discovered in those ash heaps Israeli jewelry and Babylonian arrowheads mixed together. And archaeologists were excited about this find because it was clear evidence about, of this Babylonian destruction. Where else are you going to see Babylonian arrowheads and Israeli jewelry right in the same pile? It was a devastating and uh, horrible day for Jerusalem. It was the day of judgment. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, here's quote, The battering ram took its last run at the walls. Darts from the enemy siege mounds arched into the midnight sky and struck their mark in flames. Famine had already claimed many lives inside the walls. Five Babylonian princes marched through the streets of Jerusalem, their faces illuminated by the flames of destruction. Jeremiah himself gives a vivid description in Lamentations of some of this. By the way, I would encourage you, read Lamentations, the book of Lamentations. It's a short book of the Bible, but read it this week with the story of Israel's judgment in mind. Now that we're seeing the picture and understanding what happened, it will help you understand the book of Lamentations. It's Jeremiah's lament about regarding this time in history and what was going on. Here's just a short snippet. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 4. The tongue of the sucking child cleaveth to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask bread, and no bread, and no man break it unto them. They that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embrace dunghills. For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands stayed on her. It was a horrible time of judgment. Words really cannot describe what they, people were seeing. And this is such a picture of the coming judgment for people who are lost in their sin and, remain, and hold on to their sin instead of giving their hearts to the Lord. Verse 9 in chapter 39 of Jeremiah. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive into Babylon the remnant of the people that remained in the city and those that fell away that fell to him with the rest of the people that remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left the poor of the people, which had nothing, in the land of Judah, and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So Jerusalem is burned, people are carried away captive, the defectors are carried away too, and only the poor are left to farm the land. This is horrible judgment, but again, this has been warned about for years and years and hundreds of years by the prophets, so many times. But listen to this. On this day of judgment, every promise that God ever made about the fall of Jerusalem was coming true. God said that disaster would come from the north. And I'm, I'm giving exact uh, words here from, from the prophets. God said that disaster would come from the north, and disaster came from the north on this day. God said a strange foreign nation would attack, and a strange foreign nation attacked. God said Jerusalem would be surrounded and besieged, and Jerusalem was surrounded and besieged. God said that there would be a famine in the land, and there was a famine in the land. God said the whole land would be waste, and the whole land was laid waste. God said nations and kingdoms would be torn down, and the nation of Judah was torn down stone by stone. God said death would enter the city, and death entered the city. 
God said kings would come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. And the kings came and conquered and sat. God promised that the city would be burned and the city was reduced to ashes. And God said his people would be taken into exile. And they were lined up and chained and deported. This is exactly what God has said would happen, has happened. And this, this is when we see Paul talking to Felix and saying judgment is coming. When we see Paul on, uh, in Athens telling the people there is a day appointed that there's going to be a judgment, then he's telling the truth. It's, tr- it's coming. Just as real as it was here, it's a day coming in, in the future. <sighs> but here is where there's a shift in the story in Jeremiah chapter 39. And this is where it gets beautiful and the light begins to shine through. As one commentator put it, I love this, judgment is penetrated by salvation. <laughs> Remember, in the flood, Noah, God saved Noah and his family. Out of Sodom, God delivered Lot and his family. When Jericho was being destroyed, God rescues Rahab and her family. For in wrath, God remembers mercy. And even in these great moments of God's judgment, there are trophies of saving grace. There always is. We're about to see two trophies of God's grace. Here we go, verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar. Zeradan, Zeradan, I've said different the whole time, but anyway, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard. Here's what he said. It's Nebuchadnezzar's words. Take him and look well to him and do him no harm. Listen to that. Take him, look well to him, and do him no harm. That's, what we, uh, that's, that's kind of the words that we're going to hear one day of those that are believers. God's going to say, take that person, look well to him, and do him no harm. And do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent Nebuzhashban, Rebsaris, and Nergal, Rezer, Rabmag, and all the king of Babylon's princes. Even they sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the prison and committed him unto Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should carry him home. So he dwelt among the people. Jeremiah is miraculously singled out in all of this judgment and destruction and fire and arrows and death, <laughs> the captain comes in and says, I have orders from the king to let you live and let you go home. He was going to be treated better now than even his own countrymen had, been, had treated him. I don't know how Nebuchadnezzar knew about Jeremiah. How did he know about this one poor prophet in Jerusalem? Maybe Daniel talked to him about it. I don't know, but only God knows. And that's exactly the point. You may not know how, but God will do everything necessary to make sure every one of his children is saved from the coming judgment. God never leaves a man behind. You might get overlooked in this world, you might get left by the bus, (laughs) you might get forgotten on your birthday. But God will not lose a single believer on Judgment Day. Not a single one. If you're a born-again child of God, he will find you, and the king has already had orders to snatch you out of there. And you're going to be fine. And you're going to be in the presence of the king. And it's not just the big-time players like Jeremiah. It's every single child of God, Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or free, 
Verse 15, look at this. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But, I love when God butts in, I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given unto the hand of the men whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. <laughs> Man, look at this great salvation verse here in the Old Testament. God promises a rescue plan for this guy named Ebed-Melech. You remember him? Yeah. And it's specifically because, look what it says, he put his trust in the Lord. Ebed-Melech, he was the guy who risked his own life to rescue Jeremiah out of the pit. He was... He was, just, he was a Gentile. He was nobody you would uh, think to the, the one the hero to stand up. But he did it. He rescued Jeremiah. Not, and, and he's being saved today, in this moment, not because of those works, not because of that thing he did, but notice, because of the trust that he had in the Lord. He's not saved because of his works. He's saved because of his faith. And God's and good works are a proof of that faith. That's what it was, and that's exactly what our good works are. They're a proof that we've put our trust in the Lord. If you're saved here this morning, do you appreciate how close you were to God's judgment in hell? Do you appreciate how amazing it is that Jesus would single you out and rescue you from judgment? There's a famous sermon given back in 1741, in early America, Jonathan Edwards, it's called The Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And during the years of the Great Awakening, revival here in this nation, all over people were being saved and churches were, being, were filling up with people. But there was one town named Enfield in Massachusetts that just was not interested in all this revival stuff. Then on July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached in that town in a church there. In, in place of someone else. Someone else was supposed to preach, but he came that day. But he could not even finish the sermon because the shrieks and the cries and the weeping from the people had gotten so loud by, uh, he had to stop. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. In his sermon, he gave this as a thesis statement, this sentence. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell, but the mere pleasure of God. Then, his, then in his clear and powerful way, he gave 10 reasons why that statement's true. Number one, God is all powerful. He can destroy the sinner as effortlessly as a human being can crush a worm or a spider's silken thread. Number two, the wicked deserve damnation. Divine justice calls for the sinner to be cast into hell. Number three, the wicked have already been condemned by God's righteous justice. So their proper place is hell. Number four, they're ob they, are, they are objects of the same divine wrath that, has already, uh, that the damned already suffer in hell. Meaning that 
and, and as he went on to say, is that God is actually angrier with many alive than those already enduring the eternal torment. Number five, Satan stands ready to seize the wicked as soon as God permits him. Hell opens its mouth to receive sinners and demons gather like hungry lions to devour people. Six, within the souls of wicked men are hellish principles that would burst into hellfire and consume them if God did not temporarily prevent it. Man's corruption is boundless, he said, in its fury, and it would incinerate his soul without God's restraint. Number seven, if, even if no means of death were visible, this should not give comfort to the wicked. What he was meaning by that was, you may not even see that uh, there's a day coming of your death, but it could happen in a moment. You would not even know. The natural means of death are innumerable and usually unseen. God does not need a miracle to destroy those whose wickedness offends him. Number eight, prudence and care cannot protect human beings from the wrath of God. None of your wisdom can avail any security. Number nine, humans, assuming their cleverness, will enable them to escape damnation. They delude themselves as to their eternal prospects. And number 10, God has never promised to keep sinful or natural man out of hell for one moment. The only promise of salvation is that secured by Christ's sacrifice. The promise of salvation, which applies only to the faithful who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and are born again. Back in this day, 1741, as he was preaching this, and he used so many vivid descriptions, things like, he talked about wickedness was like a lead weight pulling people down to hell. And only God was keeping them from falling in. I mean, any moment God could just let go and they would fall right into hell. God's hand, or he said, was like a dam holding back the floodwaters of judgment that are just yearning to be released onto uh, wicked people. But uh, God could hold, pull back his hand at any moment. Back then, in, those, in that revival, pe- people could stomach such preaching. <laughs> Because that's heavy preaching. But no wonder Jeremiah wrote these words in Lamentations chapter 3. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. When we wake up and the next day we're not judged into hell, we say, God, your compassions are new. Great is your faithfulness. You've rescued me from that and I'm so thankful. If, even if you gave me not one more thing the rest of my life, even if I never got one penny from you, just the fact that you've saved me and rescued me from hell is enough. Once you see the severity of judgment, then you can truly understand mercy and grace and really get it. The only thing holding back this same judgment on America right now is God's hand. And he's angry. When our 11th year and 4th month and 10th day comes, the question is, will we be ready? What should we do as we end? Number one, make sure you have accepted the free gift of salvation that is through Jesus Christ. That is the only way to escape hell. Number two, be passionate about following Jesus. And then number three, give the gospel to, where, to whom you can. That's what the early disciples did. That's exactly what the early disciples did. And we should too. Lord, Right now, we are filled with thanks.
We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.